Yes, sir. Right. Um, the order of service that, that, that we talked about earlier was based on the tithe. Yes, that's right. So how does that now play itself out yes. in, uh, in spirit and truth? And is there yes. a, a shift and change in, yes. in some of that? Yes, that's an excellent question. It does play itself out uh, in the shift because, for one thing, you don't have animal sacrifices, mm-hmm. right, in the, in the service of worship. Uh, but you do have counterparts that would correspond with some of the sacraments that no longer exist. Like we don't have peace offerings, fellowship offerings, but part of that fellowship offering was to, for the worshiper to actually eat it in the presence of God. And uh, we do have a New Testament counterpart to that that we call the Lord's Supper. Um, we don't have, there were all kinds of cleansing rites associated with temple worship. Um, by which a person could be cleansed from defilement. And we don't, have, we don't have all of those cleansing rites in the New Testament today, but we do have baptism, which is a, it is a rite of cleansing uh, that symbolizes the removal of defilement. And uh, I think it's John, John's Gospel, chapter 3, refers to baptism as a ceremonial washing, a ceremonial cleansing. I can't recall the exact Greek word that's used there, but I know it is in John uh, chapter 3, but Hebrews chapter 10, our bodies washed with pure water. I think that's another, uh, another example of it. So um, you have carry over, right? You have continuity. You still have the reading of Scripture. You still have that se- sealed with sacraments, but then you have some radical discontinuity too. Right? The nature of the sacraments has changed. There's no more shedding of blood, because the blood has been shed once and for all, and I think that's the primary thing you have that disappears. But then the other trappings and ceremonies and stuff that went along with temple worship fall, fall aside too, like the incense, because that's the glory cloud. You don't need it because we have the glory spirit. Right? We have the down payment of the spirit now, and, it, and we're the temple. Um, you don't have a consecrated priesthood, but you have ordained servants. You know, you've got ordained ministers, elders, deacons. You still have ordination. Um, but the whole, I mean, the, every member of the church belongs to the priesthood of believers. You know, we're all priests who serve before God. But a minister, in my understanding of the um, office of minister and the ordination by which the, the man is set apart to serve in that office, to him is entrusted the ordinances of public worship, and he administers word and sacrament. He reads and preaches the scriptures and, and administers baptism in the Lord's Supper. So you, you, still have, you still have ordinances that are administered by a man who holds a special office. Uh, he doesn't function in a mediatorial sense between God and the people like the Levitical priests did, um, but he still... He still officiates in a worship service and administers the ordinances by which we have communion with God. So you still have some carry-through, right, there. Um, That carry-through will become irrelevant in the eschaton. We don't need anyone to administer uh, those ordinances of worship. We will no longer need that, and we will no longer need baptism and the Lord's Supper because what those signs symbolize, we will have 
you know, in full, full measure, the full reality of it. We've got it now by, by virtue of the Spirit, but we still have the earthly signs. We're talking bread and water and wine, these earthly elements. It's still earthy things. It's lower register stuff, right? So it's not fully heavenized yet. So there, uh, there's carry through, I think, in terms of order, too. I, th- uh, I don't think there's a rearrangement of order in the internally in the service of worship itself. That seems to carry through pretty, pretty clearly. Though you don't have any very, you know, you don't have a definite passage in the New Testament that lays out an order of service, do you? You don't really have that. The closest thing we might g- get to it would be um, the visions in Revelation. You'd have some things, but that's a different, that's a, you know, different uh, uh, ball game because you're talking about heavenly worship there. Um, but you're also talking about some unique visions that were given. But um, you have in the book of Acts, for example, Acts 2. Why don't we start there? Why don't we do this? Uh, let's look at Acts chapter 2. Maybe this will be helpful. Um, one of my favorite texts regarding early Christian worship is in Acts chapter 2, and it's Acts 2, verse 42. But what, let's back up just a little bit before um, and go back to, well, why don't we go to verse 36. We'll start there. So Peter's concluding the Sermon on the Day of Pentecost. And he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There you see the rite of baptism, and by rite, R-I-T-E, rite of baptism, ordinance. I use the word sacraments a lot, but I'm not, I'm not wedded to that term. It's not a biblical term. You don't have to use it. Ordinance will work. But there you see baptism connected to forgiveness of sins and gift of the Spirit, bestowal of the Spirit. So it's an outward sign that um, symbolizes those spiritual realities. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What verse did I stop at? Verse 38. Then verse 39, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself for the promise. The promise of what? Promise of forgiveness of sins and bestowal of the Spirit. Uh, Baptism is a sign appended to the promise. Word, promise, sign attached to word, right? Word, sacrament. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and were added to that. uh, And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they, here's the key verse I want to focus on. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. What are those? Those are four elements of worship, four ordinances of worship. You've got a little list here of what they did in worship. Uh, The first one is the apostles' teaching. That's the ministry of the word, reading, preaching the scripture. Uh, The second one is fellowship. Do you know what the Greek word is there for fellowship? Koinonia. Have you heard that before? Koinonia. Do you know what that means? Fellowship. (laughs) You know what else it means? Common. Yeah, a common. Sharing. Uh, And I think specifically it means sharing in this because it's referring to the sharing of material goods with with those who need. 
Okay, it's a diaconal giving and sharing. Okay, they're sharing their material goods. And how do I, why do I think that? Well, the following verses point that out. Uh, the breaking of the bread, I think that refers to the Lord's Supper. I think that refers to communion here and the prayers. Okay, so you've got Lord's Supper, prayer, uh, diaconal giving or almsgiving, we may say, uh, apostolic teaching, baptism. You've got some elements of worship mentioned here, right? The ordinances of worship are mentioned here. And um, let's look at one other place. Any questions about that, uh, by the way? Oh, can I, you know, if I can find this, let me see if I can find it in my notes here. Um, I had some stuff to cover. Uh, I don't think I have the whole thing, but let me see. No, no, I don't have the whole, the whole quote, sorry. I was going to read something to you from Justin Martyr. So Justin Martyr was a Christian who lived in uh, Rome in the middle of the second century, and he wrote you know, certain Christian um, uh, treatises. And about 150 AD, he wrote a description of Christian worship. And in his description of Christian worship, he says, early in the morning on the first day of the week, Sunday, Sunday worship, we gather together and sing hymns to Christ. And he gives, some, he gives a brief sketch of their worship service. And guess what he mentions? Those four things specifically are mentioned in his service of worship. So this is what um, early Christian worship looked like. Um, so that is, I mean, that's not very much. That doesn't really give us very much to go on as far as an order of service. Acts 2.42 doesn't. It just gives us a list of ordinances. But how do you order those ordinances? How do you put them together in, a, in, a, in an order of worship, right? a liturgy, a, a form of worship? I think you have to work with the biblical models that you have in Scripture, such as Exodus 24. And I think you also have to, um, I think you also have to um, deduce things by good and necessary consequence what should come before what? That's another way of doing it. I do have an idea. Let's do this. Go back to Nehemiah. Well, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. While you're in chapter, while you're in the book of Acts, um, the reading and preaching of Scripture was a central feature in the, in the um, synagogue service. And uh, so let's look at Acts chapter 13 really quick. One thing I haven't talked about, and I've neglected it not on purpose, I, I have done uh, some research on this and written some on it, is the synagogue service. Uh, so you have the temple service, but you also have synagogue services every Sabbath day. The temple serves as a model for early Christian worship, but the synagogue services also serve as a model for early Christian worship. So you don't have just one Old Testament root for Christian worship. You have more than one root. And the synagogue service, in my understanding of it, uh, and I think the best scholarship is bearing this out, was not a competitive arrival or a rival of the temple worship, but it was, it was thought of as an extension of temple worship. And one of the primary features of synagogue uh, worship on the Sabbath, and I believe there was worship every Sabbath day on the synagogue, was the reading and exposition of Scripture. And every Sabbath day, uh, every Sabbath day, maybe this, this would be helpful, you would have a Lectio Continua reading of the Torah. The Torah would be read. What's the Torah? What does that mean? The law. What does it refer to specifically? First five books, okay? And then you would have a haftarah, which means after the law, 
basically what the word means. So you would have two readings of Scripture. The law would be read and the prophets. Now by the prophets, uh, they mean the historical books too, not just Isaiah through Malachi, but Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, those books, the Law and the Prophets. Every single synagogue service, you would have two readings from Scripture. The Law and the Prophets would be read every Sabbath day. Following the reading of the Law and the Prophets, you would have an exposition of Holy Scripture. How do we know that? Let me show you. Look at Acts. Let's go to Acts 15. Go back. I know I'm jumping around here. But let's start in Acts 15. And let me see if I can find it. Verse 21. Acts 15, verse 21. This is in the... um, council at Jerusalem of the elders with the apostles present to resolve a controversy. But here's what James, the Lord's brother, said, Acts 15, 21. From ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Okay? In every city, it's widespread practice, from ancient generations, ancient practice, uh, and every Sabbath day, every Sabbath, he is read. So Moses is read, he's proclaimed, for he is read every Sabbath day in the synagogues. Look at Acts 13 now. Go back to Acts 13. You know, so we know for certain there was a reading from the law in worship every Sabbath. Uh, where is it in Acts 13 where Paul says um, the prophets are read every Sabbath? Is that right? 20? No. Uh, yes. Yes, you're right. Very good. Very good. Thank you. So Acts 13, 27. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, um, for, those who, for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath. There it is. Now, what I've said is there is a reading of the law and the prophets, the Torah and the half Torah, every Sabbath. Now look at Acts 13, go back to verse 15, I think it is, if I can find it, Acts 13, 15, yes. So Paul and Barnabas are in the synagogue in uh, Pisidian Antioch on the Sabbath day, and guess what you have in verse 15? After the reading from the law and the prophets, there it is, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have a word of exhortation, which is a Hellenistic idiom for sermon. It's used in the book of Hebrews to refer to the sermon. Brothers, if you have a sermon, then give it. So brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, then say it. So what do you have? The law is read, the prophets are read, the sermon follows it. There's a little bit of an order of worship that was done in the synagogue. Um, Go to Luke chapter 4. We'll see another interesting text about synagogue worship specifically the reading and exposition of Scripture in the synagogue. Every time Jesus went into a city or village or town and went to the synagogue on the Sabbath, he would, he would preach and teach, right? That's what the, the Gospels tell us. Uh, Paul, after his conversion, continued to go to the synagogues every Sabbath and would preach and teach as long as they allowed him to do it until they ran him out. And when they ran him out, he would often set up shop next door or somewhere down the street or something and, and have services. So Luke chapter 4, look at this. Um, I think it's verse 16. Yeah, verse 16. So Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, 
And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read, like I'm standing at a desk to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, this would, this would have been the Haftarah reading, which immediately preceded the sermon. There would have been a Torah reading prior to this. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Now, the scroll of Isaiah is the longest scroll of the Old Testament, I believe. Now, can you imagine unrolling a scroll, a big scroll like that? You're going to be at a desk, a reading desk. He's standing in the middle of the synagogue. He stood up. The scroll was handed to him, and we know from uh, architectural findings and then from literary documents about the synagogue furniture and arrangement that the scrolls would have been kept in what they called the ark. The scroll would have been removed from the ark. It would have been taken to uh, the speaker, preacher that day, or whoever's going to read um, the lection, the reading. And Jesus unrolled the scroll. He found the place where it was written, and then he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Now, let's skip down to verse 20. And he rolled up the scroll, and he gave it back to the attendant. Now, this is a technical term that refers to an actual um, person who held an office, if we can call it an office. He was appointed to do this, and the Hebrew term for it is the kazan. The role of the kazan is to take the scroll from the ark. This is one of his roles, to give it to the speaker and then to take it back and put it up. There was a whole ceremonial thing uh, uh, that went along with this. So he, he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. So he stands to read at the desk, and he sits to teach. That's what the, all, all the rabbis did. And do you know what he sat on? A chair. <laughs> I thought that was a trick question, right? He sat on a, he sat on a chair. Uh, he sat on a special chair in the synagogue. Do you know what it was? The seat of Moses, which Jesus refers to in Matthew chapter 23. Listen to what the scribes and the, and the Pharisees tell you because they sit in the seat of Moses. What on earth is that? We know uh, from um, archaeological finds and from documents from the ancient world that they had a, you know, stone chairs in the synagogue referred to as the seat of Moses. And the idea is that when Moses is read, the rabbi um, is giving an interpretation of Moses and he's like a successor of Moses. It's almost like he holds the Charles Hodge Chair of Theology at Princeton Seminary. So he holds the chair of Moses, right? And he's giving this authoritative interpretation of Moses. Jesus sat in the seat of Moses in the synagogue to give the divine interpretation uh, of Scripture. So he sat in the seat, and then he began to give his exposition. And his exposition, of course, almost gets him killed because he's claiming that what he just read is being fulfilled uh, in their hearing. It's not just an exposition of what's yet to come, but what is here, what, what has come. Now go back to Nehemiah chapter 8, and uh, this is this one of my favorites. Where does this synagogue liturgy come from? It most likely comes from, um, I mean, in my thinking, in my, uh, in my view, Sabbath worship is instituted by God in the law. And because the law requires a holy convocation on the Sabbath. I think that's Leviticus chapter 23. A holy convocation on the Sabbath. And um, 
you remember when the woman's son died and she uh, was going to take him to see the prophet and she went and told her husband where she was going? What did, what did her husband say? Why are you going to see the prophet? It's not what? It's not the Sabbath. Ooh, that's interesting, isn't it? It's not the Sabbath. That's ordinarily what you would do on the Sabbath. You'd go and hear the prophet speak the word of God. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 8. Okay, so here's what I was saying. The law of God, way back in Moses' day, institutes holy convocations. A convocation is an assembly. A holy assembly is an assembly that has assembled, a group that has assembled to carry out holy acts, okay, sacred rites. So it's a service of worship. Worship was required on the Sabbath day in the Mosaic Law. Whether Israel was faithful in carrying that out or not is another thing. But the synagogue reading of Scripture and exposition of Scripture uh, takes especially Nehemiah chapter 8 as its model. The way it was conducted during the time of Christ and the apostles was based on what you find here in Nehemiah chapter 8. So Nehemiah 8 verse 1 says, And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe, scribe means teacher, Ezra is also a priest, the priests were teachers, Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, that's the Torah, that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest, Ezra scribe, Ezra priest, brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand, uh, all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. He's reading through this whole thing. He's reading through the whole of the Torah till, until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of, of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood, and there's a long list of names that won't read, we can skip. But look at verse 5. Here's the main point. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. So here's the book open, not like this, because this is a scroll. It's still a scroll. He opened the scroll in the sight of all the people. For he was above all the people, standing on the platform, above all the people. He holds up the scroll. He op- opens it in the sight of all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood and Ezra blessed the Lord. What's that? He, it's prayer. This is the prayer preceding the reading of Scripture, which we call today the prayer for illumination. He blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The reading of Scripture is an act of worship here, and um, that's obvious from the prayer that precedes it and the liturgical ceremony that follows it, raising their hands, bowing their faces uh, to the ground, lifting their hands and bowing their faces. And then it says, let me see. Okay, look at verse 8. And they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So there's a reading and an explanation of what is read so that the people would understand it. So it's the reading and exposition of Scripture. Now that could refer to some sort of um, what they call a a targum, um, an Aramaic targum. So if it was read in Hebrew and then explained in Aramaic, which would have been the language that they most spoke at the time, 
but it was a systematic exposition of, of the Torah. And I think the idea is that they'd read a passage and explain it, read a passage and explain it, read a passage and explain it. So it was the Lectio Continua of the Torah that um, the Jews in their synagogue services did uh, every Sabbath. The Torah was read on a Lectio Continua in uh, Palestine on a three-year cycle. So there were two traditions. Is that right? Yeah, three-year cycle. There was the Palestinian tradition by which they would read through Genesis through Deuteronomy every three years. They would read a passage, pick it up the next Sabbath, read the next passage, pick it up the next, and so on. The ba in Babylon, they did it every year. They, I guess they were more spiritual than the Palestinian Jews. So there, were, there was a three-year cycle of Lectio Continua Torah reading every Sabbath, present during the time of the first century in a one year in, ba in Babylon and later in Babylon. Um, now, th if you think about it, that's kind of the nature of the way to read a scroll. Uh, you don't have any chapter divisions in the scroll, you don't have any verse divisions, and you really have only one point of entry in the text, and there's not even any spaces between the words or the sentences, no punctuation or anything. Um, and when you read a scroll, you don't roll it open back and forth to whatever text you want to find. Um, you, you read it, and then you roll it a bit, and you read the next column, and you roll it a bit, and you read the next column, and you roll it a bit, and so on. If you were to manipulate it every time, working your way through it, you'd tear, tear it up. So the natural way of reading the Torah would have been on a Lectio Continua. Now the prophet reading, or the Haftarah reading, was ordinarily a selected reading. So this is called the Lectio Continua, which means the continuous reading. This is called the Lectio Selecta. It was a selected reading from the prophets, and the selection from the prophet corresponded to the Torah reading, and was meant to be, uh, and was meant to provide the interpret, the key to interpreting the Torah. So the idea is scripture interprets scripture. This is the primary text on which the exposition in the synagogue took place. The secondary text um, was somehow provided the inter interpretive key to this. So it, it helped the rabbi to expound uh, the scriptures. Now, we know, with, we know with certainty that that's what was going on in the first century when Jesus went uh, into the synagogues, and that's what was going on when the apostles went into the synagogues. We also know that there were prayers before the reading. So you'd have a prayer like you have it in um, Nehemiah chapter 8 prior to the reading, Torah reading, prophet reading, exposition, you get a little window into an order of service, at least what it would have looked like in the synagogue, which I think is one of the roots for how it would have taken place in the, in the Christian church. Why spend a lot of time on something that you didn't even ask about? Uh, but that maybe gives us an example of how the reading and preaching of scripture was done in early Christian, Christian worship. Other questions, comments? Yes. Um, at the water gate? Yes, I believe that's correct. Yeah, but I'd have to go. Yeah. Yes. Um, 
Mm-hmm. Prophets would preach. Jeremiah 7, yeah, for example. So this was a particular feast, um, and I think it's the Feast of Tabernacles, if I remember what they were, what they were celebrating here. And it goes on into chapter 9, too, of Nehemiah. It's been a while since I've written on it. But it's an eight-day eight festival. And uh, in that eight-day festival, there's a reading of the law through the, whole, through the whole week. So the whole of the Torah is read on Electio Continua during, during the whole week. And what they do here, it was actually prescribed. And I've got it somewhere on notes, but I would never be able to find it. But in, um, in the law of Moses, every seven years... God commanded the Israelites to read through the whole of the Torah every seven years. And uh, on one occasion, in one setting, to read through the whole of the Torah in one of those holy convocations. And so that's what, that's what Nehemiah is doing here. Now that, um, that requirement to read through the whole of the Torah every seven years at a particular feast is something that they tried to mimic in the synagogues in their weekly Sabbath readings, reading through the, the Torah that way. Everybody tired? Yes, sir. <laughs> okay, so I haven't said anything about music uh, whatsoever. So uh, what about music uh, in worship? Uh, music had a very important part in temple worship for sure. Um, you have choirs instituted. You have the Psalter, which is the hymnal of ancient Israel. You have psalms that are, are written for particular occasions, like the Psalms of Ascent. You see collections of psalms, the Hallel psalms that were used at the feasts during the annual festivals, psalms that were written to accompany sacrifices like Votum Thanksgiving psalms. If you make a vow to God, and, and uh, if you make a vow to God, asking God to do something for you, and promising to give him a sacrifice of Thanksgiving and an animal sacrifice, then you would pay your vow by taking a sacrifice to the temple and offering it and giving a votum thanksgiving. So Hannah does this, right? Hannah chapter 2, right? Uh, so Hannah, when she made the vow, Lord, if you will give me a son, I will give him to you. Whenever she goes to the temple, well, the tabernacle, to pay the vow, to give Samuel to the priest, she makes a vote of, vote of thanksgiving song, right? The song of, the song of Hannah. Um, I think you have... Uh, song in worship in the New Testament spoken of in a few different places. One is Colossians 3.16, the other Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul says that we are to sing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You obviously have, so, you have songs that are psalms of praise, hymns of praise and thanksgiving in Luke 1 and Luke 2. There's the song of Mary, there's the song of Zechariah, there's the song of Simeon. There's the song of the angels, the glory to God in the highest that the angels sing. There's the songs that are sung in the book of Revelation, which give thanks to God, praise to him for the lamb, right? He was slain and he's conquered. So these are definitely um, songs about Christ specifically and his, and his redemptive work uh, sung in the heavenly temple. And I think, um, I think hymnody... And psalmody, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs is a very important part of Christian worship. And it has different functions in the service of worship, but its primary function is to uh, give voice of our praise to God in, in corporate singing. Now, I don't know what specifically you had in mind with regard to songs and worship, 
you could be thinking about style of music or other things. But So, yes, well, maybe I am too, because I sort of think of it the same way. Um, much of what is, much of what the Roman Catholic Church um, attempts to achieve in the smells and bells approach to worship, um, inspiring the devotion of the worshipers and... Um, giving the worshiper an experience that transcends earthly life, right, to where we think we're, you know, in the presence of God in heaven. Contemporary praise music tries to do something similar to that by giving uh, worshipers uh, a mountaintop experience in the form of an emotional high. So I see them, those sort of things as two sides of the same coin um, are two different forms of the same thing. Now, having picked on those two traditions, let me pick on our own a little. Um, our tendency, I think, in some Reformed churches that's committed to a classical Reformed approach to worship is to, is to um, I hope, I'm trying to think of some terms that are not pejorative, but is to be a little bit narcissistic, or okay, here's the word, highbrow in, in our worship. Um, if, you know, lowbrow is guitars and drums um, and praise bands, then highbrow is Bach and, and so on. But either way, um, either way, um, worship can be turned into a form of entertainment. And if, and if there's anything the Bible teaches about worship, it's this, it is God-centered and not man-centered. And if there's anything that we've seen in the study of Genesis and Exodus and so on, it's that God has instituted worship to the praise of his own glory, and that he's the center of worship, we worship him. And it's not for our entertainment, it's for him. So um, having said that, uh, you can you can, uh, I think, distort worship or confuse worship with liturgical drama, sacred drama, which I think is what is going on in Eastern Orthodoxy and in Roman Catholicism, uh, Roman Catholicism and other high church forms of worship where you have a lot of the smells and bells and stuff. You have this drama that's performed before the people. Um, and you can confuse worship with another kind of performance. It can be you know, classical uh, highbrow performances or lowbrow jam sessions or something. But either way, it's, I think it's 
there's something there in all of those things that seems to me to be contrary to what worship is all about. And that is the, the glory of God. Uh, and we don't need the trappings of the ceremony or we don't need the emotional energized high that comes from loud music or whatever um, to bring about adoration and awe and wonder as we stand in the presence of God and think about what he's done for us in Christ. The gospel ought to be what drives our worship and uh, what inspires devotion and evokes awe and praise of God. God's works of creation and salvation in Christ ought to be what, what drives it. Uh, and we don't have to substitute it with other things in addition to it. So I think that a, a word-centered or word-based worship uh, is definitely in keeping with Scripture because of the priority of our relationship with God is, is built primarily on God's verbal revelation to us. And um, our, our relationship as fallen creatures to God is built exclusively on the gospel. So I think that being the center of attention, the preaching of the gospel is an absolute must. Um, the liability, though, if I can put it this way, because I do think it is a liability in Reformed churches, is we tend to draw a lot of people to our churches who are academics and uh, intellectuals, cerebrally, is that a word? Cerebral-minded folks who like to have, um, who want their religion to be, you know, very thoughtful. And we don't tend to draw a lot of people who like the emotional highs. And uh, I've had people tell me this over the years. I, uh, one of my elders' wives told, uh, said this to me a few years ago. Why do we have a church full of engineers? <laughs> and why do we have a church... Uh, we, don't get, we don't draw people like are drawn to image-based worship, right? Catholic and Eastern Orthodox Church. That's image-based worship. Whether you've got a you know, beautifully vested priest um, or statues or icons and, and incense and all this other stuff, you've got images. So people who are drawn to this, um, we don't tend to draw them and we don't tend to draw people who are drawn to emotional high type things. Uh, we draw the, we draw the bookish people, you know, we draw the, I don't know how to, There you go, yeah, right, yeah. So, as a Pentecostal, former, former Pentecostal, I mean, I know all about the service of worship was a good service if you had a mountaintop experience. And by that, it meant if you were slain in the spirit or if you, you know, spoke in tongues or something like that, or if you just had an enormous rush of goosebumps or something and you felt the presence of God, you felt something, that's, what you, that's how you knew it was a good service because you kind of based it all on the, on the feelings, your, emo your emotions. Um, anyhow, I'm definitely getting in deep weeds here. <laughs> Any other? 
Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh-huh. Yep. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yes. There's definitely a challenge. So when the Re- when the Reformation occurred, the reformers started, you know, removing these uh, image-based worship services by taking out. Um, the images that were in the church, the statues, icons, or whatever were there, dismantling organs, getting rid of the vestments, stripping it down to where you have you have reading and preaching scripture, singing, prayers, you know, the Lord's Supper. Um, it's pretty simple. Um, the Roman Catholic Church um, was very concerned about the loss of its members to Protestantism, and in response. What did they do? They went in just the opposite direction and did just the opposite thing. They made their high church even higher. And they added the pageantry, they added the drama, they added more bells and whistles. And it sparked an architectural movement and um, in, uh, it's called the Counter-Reformation, sparked an architectural movement known as the Baroque era and then the Rococo era that followed it. And it was all about getting people back from the Protestants, who had, uh, getting people back from the Protestants who had left Roman Catholicism because we have the best choirs in town, we have the best music in town, we have the best show in town. So we have the best show in town. Come out and experience it. You'll never experience anything like this ever again. You're certainly not going to get it in those plain white buildings the Protestants worship in. And all you're going to do is sit in there and listen to a dead, you know, six-foot icicle lecture from, you know, a Bible uh, for whatever. Not that John Knox would have been a six-foot icicle or anything, but, um, but that, uh, that really was what they were trying to do. They were trying to draw them back. Um, so we compete with things like that, if, if competing is the right word. Um, <coughs> but I think there ought to be a lot of joy. I think there ought to be a lot of passion in our services of worship, in our preaching. You know, if we're preaching Christ crucified, raised, and ascended, and our union with him by the Spirit and our worship in heaven, how can we have a joyless service of worship um, if we do something wrong with this? Um, but there tends to be quite a bit of repetition, too, in our services, meaning like our church where I serve, we read the Ten Commandments every Sunday, say the Apostles' Creed every Sunday, say the Lord's Prayer every Sunday. And some people are kind of turned off by that because they think that the uh, repetition of it makes it rote and it's not spontaneous, it's not fresh, right? it's, not, it's not new. I don't think there's, I don't think the changing things up is what actually makes it worship sincere from the heart. If you can't pray the Lord's Prayer uh, daily, uh, like you know, we do in family worship, we pray the Lord's Prayer every daily. If by praying that it's only rote and we don't really think about it, then the problem is with us, it's not with the Lord's Prayer. The problem is in our hearts. Our hearts may be cold and far from God. Yes, sir.
Right. Right. Nor do we want to be known as a, f a fantastic, uh, what were the words you, uh, fabulous expositor of the word, uh, because what ought to be fabulous and fantastic and remembered by people is the word itself, right? Not the person who's preaching it. And that's exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. Right? I preached in such a way not to draw any attention to myself um, so that your faith would not be in man, but in but in God. Not that we should be boring preachers. I mean, if we can take the most glorious uh, gospel ever and make it boring, <laughs> we, we're pretty talented if we can do, <laughs> do that. <laughs> y'all ready to close? Uh, we've got five of. If y'all want to continue talking or, uh, or whatever, afterwards we can do, do that. But let's uh, close together. Our God and our Father, we are so very thankful that you have chosen us in Christ from the foundation of the world to be adopted as your children and brought into your family and to be brought into your dwelling place in the highest heavens through Christ our ascended and reigning King. And Father, we thank you that by your spirit you have already joined us to him now so that where he is, we are already united to him by the spirit and worship in the heavenly places. But we thank you, Father, that he will come again to receive us to himself and bring us into the Father's house at the end of the world. We look forward to that day. We long for that day. We pray that you would cause our minds and hearts to be focused on that day and to live in the light of that coming age because that's the age to which we belong. We've been delivered from this present evil age. Father, we pray, therefore, that you would cause our uh, affections and our desires to be set on things that are above, where Christ is, seated at your right hand, and not on things that are below. And we pray, Father, that our worship would be pleasing and acceptable to you through his merit and mediation. We worship in him and through him, and only because of him and the work he has done and the work he does as our intercessor at your right hand. We pray, Father, that we would glorify you in our thoughts, our words, our worship, that our worship would be centered on you and your works of creation and providence and redemption and in, in anticipation, your work of consummation. Father, we pray uh, that you, through that worship, would give us fellowship and communion with you and conform us to the image of Christ more and more and prepare us for the coming age in all of its fullness and glory. Lord, be with us in our congregations, our churches, our families. Be with us as individual believers and give us your spirit to worship you in spirit and in truth, we pray for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen.